Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Botticelli Drawings. My guest is Furio Rinaldi, the curator of Botticelli Drawings at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco's Legion of Honor. It's the first exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Sandro Botticelli. The show follows Botticelli from his time with Fra Filippo Lippi to the establishment of his own workshop in Florence. The exhibition is on view through February 11th. The exhibition catalog was published by the Fine Arts Museums in association with Yale University Press. It's really good. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $55 to $70. On the second segment, Southern Modern, arriving at the Frist Art Museum in Nashville later this month. If you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download it. Furio Rinaldi, after the break. Artist, author, activist, educator. Witness the groundbreaking practice of Faith Ringgold in Faith Ringgold American People, opening at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, November 18th. This comprehensive retrospective features over five decades of the artist's works, which detail the complexity of life in the United States and radical social change from the civil rights movement to today. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advanced reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinda Wiley, An Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinda Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, the new portraits depict young black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27th, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash Kahinda Wiley to learn more. And we're back. Furio Rinaldi, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Sandra Botticelli is as major a Renaissance artist as can be. And still, the last monograph of his drawings oeuvre was published, I think, 40 years ago. And there's never been a dedicated study of the relationship between his drawings and his paintings. Why not? I gave myself a couple of answers. Uh, Number one, uh, the scarcity of Botticelli's drawings is really remarkable, even compared to his peers from Renaissance Florence, from 15th century Italy. We have much less drawings by Botticelli than any other one, or 
better to say that fewer drawings have survived by him. I'm sure that it drew as much, if not more, than any of these other artists. If we think of Leonardo, we are in the thousands. You know, it's an exceptional case, of course. But even Ghirlandaio, Lorenzo Di Credi, the young Michelangelo, you know, we have a couple of hundred drawings by these artists. For Botticelli, I cannot, I counted at least, uh, you know, 30 sheets of drawings, um, maybe a few more. So why so? Why is it very, very few have survived, I think, in his own time. Uh, of course, you know, collecting old master drawings, collecting drawings was not as developed in the 15th century as it will become more popular in the 16th century. But also there's a matter of survival within, within Botticelli's own lifetime. While he was uh, very successful and popular throughout the 1470s and 80s, starting with the 1490s and towards the end of his career, he died in 1510. His art, his aesthetic, went completely out of fashion. It was uh, um, misunderstood, um, underappreciated, and he died in near poverty in 1510, to the point that his own family rejected his legacy, the inheritance, uh, as many deaths were coming, you know, with it. So the family didn't want to take over that kind of burden. I believe that, in fact, his workshop in his household and all the workshop materials, including the drawings, were kind of, you know, dismantled and discharged soon after his death. Then there are other reasons why his drawings have not been studied, but, you know, maybe we can go through them throughout this interview. But just to say that I think the vast majority of his graphic outputs, of his ideas on paper, I think they were lost already in Botticelli's lifetime. So the, 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 what I've done for the exhibition here is almost on top of being, you know, an, a critical and art historical, you know, effort that was almost an archaeological one because it, it was a, I, I tried to reconstruct a corpus that was very much, you know, forgotten or lost. You open your catalog essay not with 15th century Florence, but with 20th century dance. Surprised me, maybe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, an Italianist, but it surprised the heck out of me. And by the end of my first read, I thought it was pretty awesome. How might thinking about dance and choreography help us understand Botticelli's drawing practice? Well, I'm glad that you appreciated that introduction and beginning. I always try, as an art historian, I feel like there's only much that I can do. I mean, the scope of art history got really broad. But uh, I always try to look for answers in other fields also. And uh, I feel that artists speak to artists, you know, in a way that uh, us, you know, art historians cannot. And as I was going through the literature and reading, uh, I really came across this recurring interest for Botticelli in the world of dance. I read this beautiful biography of Balanchine, possibly, you know, the greatest choreographer of the 20th century, certainly the most, you know, influential, and especially for the American ballet, I mean, a seminal figure. And uh, there was a passage where he recounted his meeting, encounter with Botticelli's Primavera at the Uffizi. At the time, he was very young. He was still a dancer in the... Ballet Russe troupe uh, with Sergei Diaghilev, who was, you know, who's the one who brought the artistry uh, and uh, great collaborations with painters and designers within the ballet, which was very innovative at the time. So certainly a 
impresario and a, and a you know and a choreographer himself that it was very much inclined to a you know closer collaboration between the visual arts and the dance and uh, in this story he tells that basically the Aguilefs left him uh, for hours in front of the primavera and told him you know look look and learn uh, and he was very young and you know kind of tried to make the best of it and you know it's a very kind of a fun you know anecdote you know that led to a discussion between him and the Aguilef but ultimately what he said is that that painting remained with him throughout his life and in fact it was uh, it's cited as a reference for many of his ballet that allowed me really to look at the primavera in a whole different way is a painting that we all know it's kind of a textbook you know renaissance painting that extensively reproduced even overly reproduced and kind of flattened in its you know meaning and i look at it through balanchine eyes and it's in fact essentially a ballet it's pretty amazing so you have this sequence of nine figures and you know three of them are really dancing but all the others are caught in a ballet-like pose and so i got to think about the design of this scene the kind of ornamental quality of the bodies the expressive qualities of the bodies i i really get into that in a much more i don't want to say deeper but different way a different angle through the lens of drawing and dance, you know, they're both about lines and, again, expressing the body, and, you know, designing the body in an, with an expressive meaning. And also the figures are arranged within the space, which is exactly what the choreographer does. So that gave me a point of entry to look at, you know, if this works in a different way and how drawing helps organizing the movement, and the scene. And so that was really, again, the point of departure for this investigation of the lines in Botticelli's work. And I think, you know, if you think of him, he's a really beautiful and really musical artist. Other of his paintings, you know, were compared to ballet or dances, the calumny, the palace and the centaur. You know, there's a, a, a rhythmic element. There's always something that breaks the perfection it's always on the verge of some sort of change something that is about to happen so i thought that the kind of structuring the exhibition and that you know essay through almost like a you know dance manual was a interesting possibly intention and expanding our knowledge of an artist that we all know or we think we know it works big time um, i had not noticed until i read your essay that la primavera in la primavera every figure and even kind of the one kind of spectral, you know, devil angel figure, every figure but one is moving. Every every figure but one is in motion. And I think this relationship between Botticelli and movement is going to come up again and again as as we continue here. But first, let's return to 15th century Florence. Why was drawing so important to an artist's practice and to the operation of a studio? One of the answers, one of the possible answers is the first room of the exhibition, which is dedicated to Fra Filippo Lippi, Botticelli's teacher, uh, a towering figure of the early Renaissance and an incredibly important draftsman. There is often the misconception that these great artists from the past, or even contemporary artists, they are kind of, you know, 
emerge, you know, from the earth, like fully formed uh, and like armed only of their exceptional talent and they need no, you know, training or, you know, they have no backstory. And for some, probably it's true. Certainly Michelangelo is one of them. You know, he really wanted to diminish the role that his teacher had for him, uh, Ghirlandaio. And it's very interesting to read Michelangelo's biography by Condivi, which really tries to emphasize really the, the genius kind of, you know, emerging and and revealing itself without any help. But for Botticelli, that is completely not true. Uh, Fra Filippo was an instrumental figure and personality in his training. He True drawing, he gave him the, he, he trained him to all the basic techniques that Botticelli would use throughout his career. And it also is the one who introduced Botticelli to a use of drawing that is much more diversified than it was before. So, to answer your question, why drawing was important uh, for several reasons. Uh, first, uh, it's how you acquire your own vocabulary, your own visual vocabulary, your own technical vocabulary. It's by learning how to draw, copying the works of, you know, great masters, just exercising the end, and you copy something, but you also, at the same time, you absorb and develop, you know, style of your own. Drawing was used to organize the work within the workshop. And in the exhibition, we see this in very important drawings by Gilan, by, sorry, by Fra Filippo which are compositional drawings for large fresco paintings, which were done not only to, for Fra Filippo to organize his idea and kind of visualize uh, the composition on paper, but these were also handed to the workshop for the actual execution of the frescoes. So, you know, one pupil can do, you know, that figure, you do the other figure, you grind the color and you prepare the wall for the background architecture. So they were really functional in the very complex, you know, process of making these large endeavors. And the frescoes in Prato, which are about, you know, 30 minutes, you know, north of Florence today, are the kind of the stage, uh, speaking of ballet, where Botticelli moved these first artistic steps. Uh, this was a main commission that Fra Filippo received from the Medici. Fra Filippo was a favorite painter of the Medici, as Botticelli will become their, you know, new favorite painter upon Fra Filippo's death in 1469. And uh, through drawings, uh, not only Fra Filippo could really visualize and, you know, fine-tune his ideas, but also organize the work and organize the labor within the workshop, which included, you know, sometimes up to 20 assistants. So uh, drawing was really an important mean to structure the work. And uh, for with Fra Filippo is the first artist in Renaissance Italy by whom we have a, a corpus of body of drawing. It's not large, but it's big enough to uh, to show how he diversified the typologies of drawings, and each of them are represented in the exhibition. We have beautiful figure studies, a singular figure. We have drapery studies. Fra Filippo is the first one who produced these beautiful drawings of draperies, where you basically don't see the figure that inhabits them, inhabits this beautiful, you know, cloth. But it's all an exercise of the tactile rendering of this, you know, beautiful draperies and how the, the, the light really bathes them from above. And then you have compositional drawings that I just described. Uh, um, we have copy drawings, copy copies of drawings, so done by pupils who were kind of learning how to draw by copying Fra Filippo's drawings. So for me, it was very important 
for the audience to understand crucial important dynamics of a Renaissance workshop and how drawing was instrumental in those dynamics. You mentioned that only a few dozen of Botticelli's drawings are known to survive. In your essay, you detail that none of them are hand studies. Only three of them are drawings of women. There are a few head studies that have survived, but only six of them are tied to surviving paintings. There are no flowers, no plants, no cartoons. Mm-hmm. So given, you know, somebody who's, who's worked through this question in my own practice as an author and historian, given what is not present, how do you try to understand an artist's drawing practice and its important in, importance in his broader practice when you have so little? You know, Tyler, at some point, uh, I almost thought, like, is it is it worth it, like, doing an exhibition on Botticelli's drawings? Should we do it? Is this the right angle? Because so few have survived. And the answer was yes, because uh, the survival may lead us think that drawing was, after all, n- not so important for Botticelli and the very few drawings by his teacher, Fra Filippo Lippi, may lead to the same conclusion, but actually it's the opposite. Uh, The few works that we have shows a sophistication, a complexity, such a varied use uh, that clearly attests that Botticelli was not only very much evolved as a draftsman, but that it's something that was uh, central to his design process, to his thinking, to his workshop practice, something that was uh, absolutely important uh, in making Botticelli what he was. Uh, His works are characterized, his paintings uh, are characterized by such a graphic component, such a linear, you know, essence, uh, to the point that I think many critics and art historians of the past, they thought because the quality of Botticelli painting is already so graphic, it's already so linear, that Maybe, you know, what's underneath or what's before, the, meaning the drawings, that would necessarily reflect what we see on the surface. So it's not really worth of investigation, but this could be not farther from the truth. In fact, you know, the drawings reveal many, many, a much more complex, you know, development of his ideas than what we see on the surface. So again, going back to the archaeological aspect of the exhibition, For me, it was very important to emphasize uh, and reiterate that what we are seeing is the surviving corpus. Uh, It's not everything that he has produced. Uh, And uh, I try to bring that kind of understanding in the exhibition by showing uh, also, you know, sometimes not the great condition of the drawings uh, or that many of them are double-sided, you know, and that we're seeing just one side if a drawing is hanged on the wall. So bringing this very, you know, the three-dimensional understanding of the works as artifacts, artworks that, like many other things, have suffered time and the fluctuations of taste. Yeah, that was really an important aspect to highlight. You write in the catalog that among Fra Filippo's most lasting artistic legacies and one that you think particularly influenced Botticelli was, quote, his ability to formalize, this is Fra Filippo's ability, to formalize new codes to characterize and affirm the individual. How do we see Botticelli building on that, expanding upon that idea? So we, what is humanism, uh, after all? It's about the affirmation of the individual. It's about the celebration of the body, 
on the earth, uh, yes, of course, there's a spiritual life, there's a religious, you know, world that it's very important uh, to, you know, people in the 15th century. But there's a whole new awareness uh, of our present life uh, and a celebration of it. So the new, there's a renewed attention to the body, to the male body, I would say, that it's especially canonical in its proportions. It becomes canonical in its proportion because of the importance that classical antiquities, Greek and Roman antiquities, have in the Renaissance. And uh, Fra Filippo Lippi is uh, certainly one of the great interpreters of this new awareness, this new awakening uh, of the body, his paintings uh, and drawings—they have—they're uh, um, very realistic. Uh, you know, they're, uh, the, the use of perspective, the anatomical accuracy is just spotless. But also, there's an element of imagination. There's an element of uh, idealization. There's an element of ornamental, an ornamental quality to his painting that is very prominent uh, in his work, and that is what Botticelli will particularly pick up. Lippi was an interpreter of the Medici's new kind of courtly taste, so to speak. You know, they were de facto rulers of the city, and uh, although they were not really officially the rulers, they kind of acted like ones. And so they uh, very much emphasized the courtly taste of this family and the kind of taste for luxury and pageantry. And uh, I think this aspect, this preciousness, uh, these elements are defining also what Botticelli will carry on in his own career. He will bring to a new level, a new complexity, this taste for ornamentation, for preciousness and decoration. Also because Botticelli, unlike Lippi, who was just a painter and a fresco painter, Botticelli will diversify his workshop activity, extending it to many other things, decorative arts, wood marketries, embroideries, tapestry design, book illustrations, printmaking, and always using drawing as a linchpin to all these you know, creative outputs. And allowing that would allow his workshop also to survive the sometimes really uh, drastic fluctuations of the market in 15th century Florence and to adapt uh, to new things over and over. But uh, I would say the affirmation of individual of the self is particularly evident in Botticelli's work by this really strong outlines, these boundaries that clearly defines the body from the external world in a very powerful, visually clearly outlining these boundaries in a very powerful way. And this will become a distinctive stylistic trademark of Botticelli's style. I think that affirmation of the individual can can take us back to motion, which, as I read the catalog, sure seemed particularly important to me in a lot of the Botticelli drawings that survive. Is there a good example or two that you particularly like in, in the show where you think we see figures in motion in, in Botticelli's drawings? Yes. There is. Uh, I, more than motion, I would say that it's almost a state of unrest. The figure looks like very static, very harmonic in its balance. But if you look closely at his drawings, uh, there's always an element that kind of breaks that balance, that it's about to 
break that perfection on the edge of some of a change. And uh, I think that it's also reflective of Botticelli's own time. You know, we're approaching the 1500. So that was like a moment of great um, spiritual anxiety. If we think back, you know, I always say it to the audiences when I'm taking tours of the, those of us who lived in the, the 2000, there was this moment of like, you, you remember of the millennium bug and the computers will blow up. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a ridiculous, you know, thing to, uh, to, to think or to say, but you can only imagine what was in the, what is people were approaching the 1500 where Italy was really under siege and on fire. You know, we'll get to that, but, you know, there's a big, big spiritual appeal at the, by the end of the century with Savonarola, the entire city is excommunicated by, you know, uh, the Pope, which is pretty, you know, bad at the time. So getting back, all these kind of uh, anxieties and unrest uh, are reflected in Botticelli's sense of movement. or, or avoid, he, he tried to avoid the perfection. I think it's really a reflection of his own time. There is a drawing that I particularly like of his early period. It's a study for a man uh, with his uh, left arm uh, upraised uh, and his other hand is on the hip. It's a beautiful metal point drawing on loan from the Uffizi. That is clearly a workshop assistant of his, posing in, his, in Botticelli's workshop, uh, and drawn uh, in metal point on yellow ochre prepared paper. And again, you look at this beautiful, you know, very slender, muscular young man. It's an image of bodily perfection for, you know, those standards. And that clearly, you know, influence our ideas of the what, bo- what a, you know, perfection of the body is today as well. And, you know, I try to touch upon this aspect uh, of Botticelli's aesthetic. But at the same time, there's something really odd about, you know, the way the the pose of this figure. Clearly, there's a huge effort for this guy to maintain the pose uh, and to maintain the pose, meaning to maintain the muscular tension, you know, the light that uh, Botticelli wanted to capture on the muscles, on the pectorals, on the shoulders, uh, on the legs. Uh, so he's leaning on, you know, this wall or probably a staff. Uh, his head is tilted. Uh, and I, you know, one can only imagine uh, the effort uh, that it took for him to maintain that position for so long. And I think Botticelli translated that kind of, you know, vibrancy and you know i don't yes the image is captured really beautifully but there's something that it's about really to change very soon and if you look at the back of the drawing in fact the same guy is really leaning now on the stuff on the wall i think he really wanted to rest and take a break i don't know it's just uh there's something very cinematic i think in uh, looking at these drawings from you know one sheet to the other you can almost see a sequence uh, of uh, the life in the workshop, but also how Botticelli was trying to visualize something more timeless and uh, canonical for him, at least. Another one I wanted to raise was a, a, a drawing from about 1473 in the Louvre. It's a study for a standing draped figure turned to the left. And it's and a small... Sebastian. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the verso of the, of the, of the drawing is a a man wearing a, a garment that is draped and he appears to be caught boom mid turn and i was primed by a certain essay but it it very much struck me as movement arrested 
Yes. So we're you're talking about catalog twelve. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's a very interesting drawing. And you know, Tyler, all these drawings are not only reunited for the same time, but I've done a lot of work uh, to uh, critically assess the chronology and the sequence among them, because it's the first time they're presented all together with a full attribution to Botticelli. These drawings that you're drawing that you're referring to, it's very important. Uh, only recently been attributed to Botticelli. The drawing to the it's now split in two. The drawing to the left. Uh, shows a um, semi-nude man with his arm behind his back. And on the right, I think it's the same model before when he was dressed, clothed with this kind of, you know, um, long cloth uh, clo- cloak, I don't know how you call it. <laughs> and he's about to undress almost. I think he's showing his leg, but that's what he's really doing. And Botticelli was captured that moment uh, where he's really lifting his drapery and showing his, you know, beautiful legs. The drawing is super important because it's preparatory for the St. Sebastian uh, painting. St. Sebastian now in Berlin, but in the 15th century, it it was a public altarpiece in the church, Florentine Church of Santa Maria Maggiore, a painting that has an entire history of in the 19th century, 20th century of uh, homoerotic appeal, especially from many gay or queer writers. Like Yukio Mishima really loved this image. And, you know, one can understand why it's a full scale image of a beautiful, you know, youthful young man, almost nude, is really offering himself uh, to the viewer. It's one of the earliest altarpieces in the Renaissance that shows the male body at full scale. So it was to the, you know, 15th century eyes, it was truly impressive to have something so daring and even transgressive in a way. Life-size too. Yes, life-size. So truly impressive. And in fact, uh, because it's so big and large and on panel, the painting cannot leave the Berlin galleries. The drawing however, reveals uh, something super interesting in the design process of this figure. So what? But if you look at the painting, if you have it in front of you, you will see that Botticelli's attention is very much on the torso in this kind of very, kind of exaggeratedly pushed out and then enhanced torso with the pectoral, you know, and the, like the, and the six pack is just incredibly well done and it receives the light light really beautifully and how he could convey that. So he has the model on the visible on the drawing, by the way, on the drawing, you don't see the face, it's just lightly sketched. So again, the importance and the attention for him was only on the body and on the anatomical accuracy of the rendering of this male body. So in order to have the torso so exaggeratedly emphasized and pushed out, he has the model to kind of hire up the hands behind his back in a much, so that the by if you try to do it, the, the torso would push out, you know, automatically. And that's how he do, did it. So he recorded this position on the drawing. But of course, when he went to the painting, he didn't find it that that was elegant, I think, that, you know, to have the hands so tied higher up would be really, you know, those are not the lines that he wanted to do. You see the, the elbows are very pointy and not really, you know, harmonic. So he took down, you know, the arms. They're much more gently, you know, tied on the back of, of, of the San Sebastian, but he retained the torso, you know, which is what he really wanted. I describe all of this to 
emphasize the changes, the pentimenti that this figure have gone through, because in the past, in the very recent past, this drawing was considered a copy of the painting in Berlin. So it was not considered by Botticelli, it was considered by a workshop assistant to copy the painting. But I think this very telling detail of the arms and the position and the result that he wanted to achieve by this change, uh, on top of other changes that are uh, seen throughout the drawing, uh, are very important to clarify the absolute autography authorship of this drawing. We will have images of all of that, uh, including the Berlin Sebastian on the show page on manpodcast.com. Oh, heads, um, head studies. There are a couple of really fascinating ones in the show, including some pretty early career head studies from Oxford and I think the Louvre. What do those head studies tell us, suggest to us about Botticelli and perhaps how he migrated them into paintings and how, or how he migrated heads into paintings? So early on, you said, that in fact there are few have studies by Botticelli and even less can be connected to his finished paintings and portraits. Uh, and uh, I mentioned that in the catalog because Botticelli is, some, sometimes we forget, Botticelli is the most prolific portrait artist in Renaissance Florence. More portraits uh, by him survived than any of his peers in uh, Florence at the time. Ghirlandaio, again, Leonardo, and others. So it is uh, very important uh, the, the the kind of, you know, this part of his career, this part of his production of as a portrait artist is incredibly important. It was a time in Florence when families uh, wanted to acquire, you know, new wealth uh, and they wanted to kind of establish themselves themselves socially by representing, you know, themselves uh, either to sculptures or through painting and Botticelli because you know he found this fine line between something extremely realistic and perspicuous but also he added a degree of stylization of abstraction of that enhances you know the the beauty and the appearance of course he was particularly appreciated as a portrait artist all of these pursuits and searches are firmly grounded in his draftsmanship and in the exhibition we have an entire section dedicated to his portrait drawings and his head studies which are reunited all of them for the first time in one room the drawing that you mentioned in Christchurch, but also there's one in Dresden, there's one in Rennes, can be connected to paintings. And certainly they serve a purpose of, you know, portraying a head uh, of a saint or, you know, a sitter in a, you know, in a scene. But ultimately, they are templates for an ideal beauty. And in fact, they were used and reused over and over in different instances. The drawing in Christ Church, which is a new attribution, was used for the head of the Virgin for the painting in the Louvre. And in the exhibition, it's pretty spectacular because you see the drawing next to the painting. So, and this beautiful head of the Virgin, you know, going from paper to the panel. However, it will become almost a template for and a reference for a specific idea 
of female beauty. Her eyes are lower, you know, modestly lower, the looking down, they never engage with the viewer. It would be an immodest, you know, uh, interaction and exchange. Uh, her forehead is very wide. You don't see the head, which was really a fashion in Florence for women to shave her, their, you know, forehead and make it super um, smooth and prominent. Uh, you have this tiny little nose, the lips are closed and chiseled, while her, you know, the connection with the painting of the Louvre is very apparent. The same face will be used for other Madonnas, especially, and other, comp- and other female figures. This is very, very important uh, for our understanding of the use of Botticelli's drawings. If we think of an artist like Leonardo, Michelangelo, or, you know, Rembrandt, uh, there's an immediate function for the drawing ahead of a commission, ahead of a painting or etching, something that it really is intrinsically ties the making of the drawing to the result. Botticelli belongs to a different generation, to a previous generation. The drawing is a template that can it's kept in the workshop and reused several times. It referenced several times for different purposes or for the workshop to use and be copied. You know, it doesn't have necessarily a function for the making of the painting. It's something that almost like in the as it was part of a model book or a reference book, you know, something that you constantly look back to. And this is why for Botticelli's, the drawings are almost like an alphabet. They're letters uh, that are used and constantly referred to in the making of the composition. We see the same faces, the same figures appearing even in 30 years of distance uh, because the drawing had that kind of uh, template function. And, and the drawing in, in Oxford is exactly an example of that. And this is why the figure is very much, you know, so clearly outlined. It's almost, you know, floating on the page. You don't see any background references because that image could be applied indistinctly to different things. So it didn't need a lot of connotation. It's in its simplicity, it could be reused and referenced to by him or by the workshop. Speaking of idealized heads, you have a drawing from the Ashmolean that is a Botticelli drawing, a workshop yep. drawing that's also, I think, at the Ashmolean, if I'm remembering right. Yep. How are they related to Botticelli's idealized portrait of a lady now in Frankfurt, which seems like one of the more direct, literal, direct kind of one-to-one relationships in the show? So it's very exciting to have this spectacular drawing in Oxford, which is truly striking for not only its size, uh, it's much larger than any of the other surviving drawings that we have by Botticelli. Uh, The level of finish is amazing. And of course, the inherent beauty of the uh, subject that the artist portrays. Uh, Idealization is really the key word here, because it most likely portrayed a young lady, Simonetta Vespucci, who died at only 23 years of age in Florence. And soon after her death was idealized and divinized almost as an emblem of grace, beauty, virtues, and became a muse in a way for many poets and artist of his time, transfigured as, you know, a Minerva, as a Venus. It is said that Botticelli uses her feature for the head of the birth of Venus, of Venus in the birth of Venus. Simonetta was the 
platonic love interest of Giuliano de' Medici, the brother of Lorenzo the Magnificent. So she becomes this kind of, you know, really emblem of something that is drawn by reality in part, but mostly from imagination and from literary sources. In the drawing, you can see that she's wearing this very complex hairdo with pearls and tresses, her hair are loosely, you know, coming down her to her shoulders. She's blonde. So there's clearly a reference to Petrarch's Laura, who at the time was really one of the great female literary characters, the beloved, you know, woman by the great poet Petrarch. And uh, she's looking to the right uh, instead of to the left, uh, where it would be, you know, where it was customary, because probably the drawing portraits uh, Simonetta when she was already dead. Living sitters, uh, they always look to the left, while dead sitters uh, and in memoriam portraits always facing right. So it shows a woman that is already being divinized uh, to some degree. You can see her kind of a very swan, you know, long neck. uh, and uh, again, there's an incredible degree of stylization and abstraction mixed with something very, very realistic. For example, a scholar pointed out that her chin is kind of, you know, it's a little bit protruding. There is a slight sign of uh, uh, prognatism. Um, it's a little bit square. It's a little bit square, and her lips, you know, is going a little bit, you know, you know, forward. Uh, uh, the nose is not exactly, you know, the nose that you know we consider uh, that Botticelli would do in the painting. So the drawing reflects uh, a much more realistic uh, and fascinating, captivating uh, image of who Simonetta was, while the paintings add an element of further brings an element of stylization and she will become this kind of beautiful nymph, uh, ethereal, uh, but totally abstract, totally detached from reality. So the drawing, what the drawing allows is a much more direct understanding, much more intimate understanding, and you really have the, almost the breath of life from you know looking at the faces through the drawings more than the paintings. Two more. You have in the show an Annunciation from Glasgow. Yes. And a drawing in the Uffizi that I think is attributed to Botticelli, or maybe you you give wholly to Botticelli. I I can't read my own notes. What is the story of the relationship between this drawing and the painting in Glasgow? So the exhibition is truly a journey into Botticelli's mind and his you know, design process and the graphic articulation of his ideas. And in every room, you have a an encounter between a drawing and the finished work of art. So in uh, this section, we are basically, you know, in the middle of the exhibition, I have reunited a new attribution to Botticelli, which is this announcing angel uh, from the Uffizi with a beautiful Annunciation panel from the Glasgow City Museums. It's one of the most exquisite paintings by Botticelli, absolutely stunning, however, really lesser known compared to others. It is really not only exquisite in its technique and preservation is just impeccable. You will see it when you come. But also what I really love is that Botticelli did something that uh, he did um, before. It's almost an actualization of the iconography. So we have the 
classical annunciation, you know, the angel Gabriel appearing from the left, announcing the Virgin Mary. There's a ray of light from gold that kind of, you know, announcing the arrival of this divine creature. The Virgin on the far right of the painting is bowing down and receiving, you know, the message and the order, in fact, of God. But all the, the holy scene is set in a contemporary Florentine palace. Uh, you see that it it's almost like Palazzo Gondi or like uh, something by San Gallo. So you have this very modern cla- classicizing, of course, but modern architecture, the blue-gray stone. It's a typical Florentine stone, the Pietra Serena. So it was a way for Botticelli to revitalize and modernize the iconography in a very daring way. I believe that the painting was possibly done for a patron who was living in one of those palaces and it would enjoy, you know, the visual clues of seeing his courtyard, uh, you know, portrayed as the setting of this <laughs> very important event. As I was, you know, working on the, you know, on the exhibition and reviewing the entire catalog of Botticelli, I went to the Uffizi, I went through the entire holdings of the Uffizi and found this drawing, which is now truly a whisper of what it was back in the days of this announcing angel. You could barely see it in under normal light because it was part of a group of drawings that in the 19th century and early 20th century was on permanent display in the Uffizi, which is, yes, pretty shocking. It is part of the series of the Esposti exposed, meaning that for about 80 years, they were under really the, on the wall, under the sunlight, drawings, uh, Every drawings, every work on paper, it's, as you know, extremely sensitive to light and light exposure. And in fact, most of the ink that was defining this beautiful study has completely disappeared. And now you have this almost ghostly figure in front of you. However, modern technology, you know, provide a lot of great information for us. And I'm, I'm a true um, believer of technical art history. So how really the modern technical evidence informs our understanding of, you know, of this material. And uh, under UV, under ultraviolet light, the, all the underdrawing, all the drawing and the pen and ink appears. And there's a reproduction of it in the catalog. And the drawing shows so many changes and pentimenti of this figure. So the announcing angel is shown in four different positions uh, of his arms uh, his arms is his arm right arm is announcing or pointing downward the left arm is holding another stem of lily or you know then is gently you know resting on his other elbow uh, so these changes together with the stylistic quality of the drawing uh, led me to the attribution to Botticelli it is very similar to another drawing in the Fizi and again it's very similar to the angel in the Glasgow painting the position of the uh, feet is nearly identical. One of the announcing hands uh, is uh, absolutely comparable with that of the painting. And when you see the drawing next to the painting in the exhibition, the scale of the two figures is really uh, absolutely identical. So we have put the great designer of the exhibition came up with this really interesting idea of placing the drawings at the same height of the figure in the painting. And that is a recurring theme for all the these pairings that we have done throughout the exhibition. So you kind of, you know, have a very immediate understanding of how the figure was used in preparation of, in the preparation of the panel. I'm very, very happy of that. 
of this rediscovery. It's one of the several that have been done in the exhibition, several new additions to Botticelli's catalog of drawings. And this shows really how much the artist was very much not only underappreciated, but there's there's a lot more that can be said and and found on these great artists from the past. We should never take for granted that everything has been written or said. I thought we would close with a workshop drawing and a workshop painting featuring the, at least to me, spectacularly unusual subject of the Last Communion of St. Jerome, which is a wild subject for lots of reasons, including that in art history, we're used to seeing uh, Jerome alone in the wilderness, not not being attended to by anything but a lion. Yeah. <laughs> why, why was the subject of Jerome's Last Communion of interest in late 15th century Florence? And then what do we learn by your putting them together here? So we have a drawing on loan from the Metropolitan Museum and a painting on loan from a private collection. First, let's discuss their their presence. Uh, the Last Communion of St. Jerome, it's a very small painting that shows St. Jerome taking the communion, attended by five other people in a very humble barn uh, outside of Jerusalem. He, as you said, his iconography is, almost relies him in his uh, hermit days, uh, as it was, you know, in the wilderness, or shown as a cardinal scholar uh, in his studio. So these very two uh, almost polar opposite portrayals. This is a highly unusual representation of Jerome. You see his hat, cardinal hat, you know, kind of, you know, hanging, you know, at the end wall. So you have that reminder of his role for the church, but also is, you know, is an old man kneel down, taking the communion as, you know, one of a very simple man. The representation of every aspect of Jerome's life, and I would say the hermit saints, received an increase under the theocracy of Girolamo Savonarola, who was the eponymous saint of St. Jerome. And so he was trying to, Savonarola was trying to promote in Florence a new, humble spirituality, something that relies mostly on an intimate appreciation, you know, of God and worship. And so Jerome became kind of, you know, this emblem of this new approach. The painting is also very small, so it was clearly done in the spirit of this a much more intimate uh, spirituality and devotion that the Savonarola trying to convey and to promote in Florence. And this very painting was early sources uh, mention him as one of the most exquisite things that Botticelli's ever done. And certainly was one of the most successful of his composition because he's known in at least uh, four or five different variations, all of the same scale, all identical. There's one at the Metropolitan Museum which is of higher quality and, you know, better execution, which is Botticelli's prototype. But certainly art is workshop, uh, you know, due to high demand of this kind of very small devotional images were asked to produce more. How do you do that? Through drawings. So next to it, we have the drawing from the Lehman Collection at the Metropolitan Museum. It is a copy drawing. It's a drawing done by a pupil 
which records basically just a central group of the figure of the painting that would need to be replicated. So drawings as this one would help the execution of all the replicas and variations from Botticelli's prototype. You can tell that it's a workshop drawing because the line work is much more mechanical and continuous. It doesn't have really that variation and calibration of the pen and ink and the you know, swells and thinness of his line that you can see in, in Botticelli's autograph work, but there's a, you know, everything is very even, uh, and uh, there are also some disproportions that are kind of odd for Botticelli. The head of the St. Jerome is really exaggeratedly larger than all the other ones, uh, which probably was something that Botticelli would approve, uh, because it it's almost, you know, emphasizes the role of St. Jerome, but, you know, it doesn't really make much sense as a compositional drawing. So drawing like this were used to produce all these different replicas of images that would promote a more humble spirituality and especially the lives of their hermit saints like Jerome but we have Saint Marina also in the exhibition which is the work that is next in catalog 51 this was another saint that lived in kind of an extraordinary life she was a woman who lived as a male monk throughout her own life. At some point, she's accused of rape by another woman, and the fellow monks didn't believe Marina, or Marino, as you know, she was trying to pass. So they basically kick her out of the convent where, and she dies, you know, at the uh, edge, you know, outside of the city. When she's brought back into the convent for the funeral and, you know, she's undressed for to be buried, the monks discover that she's a woman, in fact. And so they understand that she was falsely accused of rape. And on the background of the drawing, you can see this lady kind of, you know, there's an exorcism going on, the devil exits the you know the woman that was really the liar again it is a, a drawing by a workshop pupil by Botticelli probably used to produce a painting or a print that promotes a lifestyle of sincerity and honesty and you know all values that um, Savonarola would promote during his theocracy at the end of the 15th century it's a wild drawing. It's in Turin really um, now. Yes. I mean, it's the moment of surprise, the moment of discovery. And what's one of the interesting things in the drawing is how surprise is expressed differently across the visage and body language of everybody in the in the drawing. There's no one form of representing surprise. Everybody gets their own moment of acting out. It's what pretty... I really find compelling is the baby monk at far left. Yes. But <laughs> <laughs> it's really quite, it's really desperate. And, uh, you know, Tyler, it's not stylistically or technically, is it a great drawing? No. I mean, the faces are pretty crudely drawn. Uh, the entire composition, there's, you know, it's awkward. However, this is exactly uh, the production that Botticelli was doing uh, towards the end of his life. I think it's also very important to record his uh, sense of some sort of alignment with Savonarola's, you know, uh, preachings and, and 
thinkings, uh, and uh, also I'm very happy that you know uh, of the connection that we have between this and uh, the last community of Saint Jerome, so which was considered almost an isolated case in Botticelli's late production, but in fact, you know, it shows that he has an attention for all these lives of the hermit saints. The drawing came from Turin, which is also one of the greatest collection of drawings in Italy, and uh, I'm glad that it's represented, you know, in the exhibition. The child is expressing surprise, just as a child would express surprise. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty great. <laughs> Furia Rinaldi, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Fifty years ago, celebrated San Diego-based artist Eleanor Anton staged and photographed 100 boots on their cross-country trip from Solano Beach to New York City. A new exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego includes the 51 postcards that document the boots' journey. Also on view is work by the collective My Barbarian, whose layered performances continue Anton's spirit of social critique and playfulness. Opening September 21st on view, through February 2024. See Eleanor Anton and My Barbarian at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. Plan your visit by going to mcasd.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Jean Quick to See Smith Memory Map, organized by the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. For nearly five decades, Jean Quick to See Smith, a citizen of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Nation, has charted an exceptional and unorthodox career. The exhibition highlights more than 100 works, including her drawings, prints, paintings, and sculptures. Memory Map is the largest and most comprehensive showcase of Smith's career. Organized thematically, the exhibition offers a new framework to consider contemporary Native American art, addressing how Smith has initiated and led some of the most pressing dialogues around land, racism, and cultural preservation. It celebrates the artist's dedication to creativity and community, emphasizes her deep political commitments, and offers essential and potent reminders of our responsibilities to the earth and each other. On view at The Modern, October 15th through January 21st. More at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, Southern Modern, one of the best shows I saw in 2023. It's on its way to the Frist Art Museum in Nashville. It opens on January 26th and will remain on view there through April 28th. The show is a survey of modernism from artists who were from, worked in, or visited the American South. I talked with curator Jonathan Stallman when the show debuted at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. The exhibition is accompanied by a terrific catalog that was published by University of North Carolina Press, one of the best books of last year as well. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for between $30 and $75. Jonathan Stolman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Why is it important to present the story of American modernism as being more than only a Northeastern and Stieglitzian story, which kind of tends to be the case? You know, I think that it, it's it's a chapter of American art history that always gets left left out the way that American art is told, just as you know, many parts of work made in many parts of the country, I think, is less visible unless you're in that region. And so, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Stieglitz, and I always I always tell people, you know, the point of the show is not that we've rediscovered some 
Stieglitz circle <laughs> functioning in, in Georgia or Tennessee or somewhere that no one ever knew about beforehand and we're, we're kind of <laughs> reintroducing it to the world. It's more that there's, you know, the South in particular, I think, during this period, during the first half of the 20th century, is seen as, I think, in, generally as an artistic backwater and that there's not much going on or if there's something going on, it's kind of leftover impressionism. And, you know, so when I, you know, I'll admit that was kind of my <laughs> my upbringing within the world of art history. And so when I started spending time in the South and working here and rediscovering or discovering all kinds of fascinating artists and getting to know all of the museums and colleagues and, and projects that happened within the region over the years, I felt like there's there's a lot here that there's work that's been done, but that hasn't been kind of pulled together and looked at comprehensively. And I think if that happens, at least with this show as a starting point, it's not going to become half of half of our history of that period in this country, but at least it, it can be enter the, the story a little bit more. Early in your catalog essay, you go through the numerous surveys of American modernism that have been done in exhibition and book form over the years. And you note that darn near all of them exclude the South from their consideration. And of course, as I read the list, I noted that most of them exclude the far West too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's essentially the Americanist field, the historical Americanist field following the New York art market, you know, an attachment from which the Americanist field still, after all these years, has yet to free itself. And of course, the art market has always hewed closely to white male achievement. So as you worked on this show, on this project over the last decade, what types of histories and art histories did you come to find were overdue for surfacing and centering? Sure. I mean, I think there are a number of things that emerge. You know, some of them, you know, if, if you start looking across the artists who are included in the show, you know, a lot of those artists did travel to New York. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that in the early 20th century and even a little before, outside of maybe Chicago or, or certainly Philadelphia, you know, that was where one would go for, for training. I mean, it kind of was <laughs> just due to the the number of, of dealers, the number of museums there, the number of opportunities, that was where people would kind of go to train. And, and the question is, you know, did they come back to the South? Who was going there? Who was going to other places? And so I think what, what you'll see is, you know, any number of themes. I mean, there's the importance of women to the, to the development of art in the South, and particularly, you know, any number of museums in the South were started by women, and they're important parts of art leagues and clubs and, and things like that. And then the other thing that we start to see, and I think Shawnee Harris ex explored this in her essay nicely, and, and, and Jonathan Waltz touches on it as well, is you know, the, the rise of HBCUs during this period and the importance of the artists who taught in and founded those programs. So you see, you know, those are two kind of key components, I think, that were essential to, to the development of art in the South during the period. There are a bunch of really good essays in the show's excellent catalog. We will have a link to it on manpodcast.com. And I should also note that the catalog does a really great job of including within it works that couldn't be in the show for one reason or another, you know, murals or, or, or paintings that were too large to travel and whatnot. Yeah, and we intended the catalog. I mean, I think the the subject matter is so rich, and we could have gone to twelve different different scholars and gotten twelve different essays. And you know, the catalog was meant to be not as much. You know, when we were talking with UNC Press from the beginning, it was this is an accompanying publication. I mean, it does have a checklist of things in the show. You know, of course, at the at the end, and and it centers around works in the show. But we really wanted it to be 
something that was accessible to even a more general audience. So that's why there's a list of kind of starting points for suggested readings on most of the artists in the show at the back. And also, you know, to include more than what was it, what could be in the show even to give people, you know, to get people thinking. We wanted it to be a starting point. It's not certainly <laughs> by no means meant to be a conclusive publication, but but really something to bring things together and and open up hopefully, you know, new directions. There's no single thread that runs through the show or that holds it all together other than the time period, of course. So I pulled out a few things that struck me as, as I read the catalog and thought I would raise a few of them. One of them is that like, I, was, I was just kind of astonished at how often painters showed the earth, the ground, the land, as red. Jacob Lawrence, Hale Woodruff, Clementine Hunter, Mildred Nungister Wolfe, Charles Shannon, Nell Choate Jones, Robert Quathney, Crawford Gillis. I mean, I could keep going. Why did so many artists paint the earth as being red? <laughs> well, that was the, the title of my essay, right? Red, red clay beneath my nails. <laughs> yeah, under, but yeah. <laughs> under my nails, yeah. I think it's because, it, you know, it's something that's seen as kind of distinctive to the region. I mean, certainly, you know, you've, you've been here long enough. You know that not all the dirt here is red. <laughs> Well, certainly none of it in the Southern Appalachians is until you get into North Georgia. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know, over by in, in Charlotte, up towards Durham, sure. You know, I think it, it's it's become something that kind of is a, a signifier for the region and, you know, both the agriculture industry that was forever such a part of its history and still is, you know, it, it definitely signals South, right? I know I've tend to find that that anywhere else. I mean, when I moved down to North Carolina from Connecticut when I was 13, you know, it was distinctive. It did stand out. So this is not a show rich in Emersonian metaphor, but it did seem like for a lot of the artists, the redness of the earth, even if it wasn't kind of Georgia red clay, could metaphorically serve as as blood. Yeah, I mean, I think you, that's probably a, a valid interpretation. I don't know that I've seen in the writings, uh, you know, any of the artists writing about their work, thinking about that, but sure. I mean, that's... You kind of can't escape the <laughs> the bloody history of, of the region, too. And that was actually, you know, it was interesting. When we came up with the checklist for the show, we were trying to make sure we hit on the, ba you know, touch the bases of all the artists and all the different parts of the region that we could. And then when it came time to, you know, coming up with the checklist is one thing, but structuring, you know, how an exhibition is presented is, is another. And that actually, we ultimately came up with kind of six subsections for the exhibition itself. And one of them is, it's called The Enduring Landscape. And so that we did kind of group a number of those works together to talk about how even though the South was rapidly industrializing during this period that the show covers, that you couldn't escape, you know, the land, the land was still critical to its identity. And whether that's, you know, transition from, you know, plantations to sharecropping, whether, the, and the difficulties of what happened to the land during the depression, or whether it's, you know, transition, the growth of the lumber industry. I mean, there are any, any number of, <laughs> of reasons that the land was still a critical component of the South's identity. Two of my favorite paintings in, in the catalog that show the earth is red are um, a Romare Bearden from the early 1940s that's at the Berkeley Art Museum that I'd never seen before, and a Jacob Lawrence, also from the 1940s. And, and, and for Lawrence, in this period, red is always blood, right? And, and so those two, those two really stood out to me. Another substantial kind of near theme in the show is people. There are a whole lot of people in the show, and they aren't always doing labor, but they're very, very often doing labor. Were there reasons why laborers were of particular interest to 
Southern painters in the first 40 years of the 20th century? Well, I think in, in, in part, I mean, it speaks to kind of what I mentioned before and that you know, the South was at a point of transition where there was, you know, on one hand, lots of people leaving. <laughs> and the other hand, those that stayed, you know, you, you either kind of eked out your living subsisting off of off of the land or you moved to, you know, the growing cities and, and joined whether it's a factory, a mill, a factory. Um, you know, you joined kind of that that sort of a workforce. So I think, you know, it's definitely of interest to the artists of the period. And I think partly the reason you'll see that, I mean, I talk about this in my intro too, is is that we kind of bring together high modernism and kind of modernism as it relates to depicting contemporary life in the show. And so I think because we're not only focused on artists who are kind of pursuing that pathway towards abstraction, we're bringing in what, you know, would typically be called American scene or regionalist painting. That's probably another reason why you see so many people in the show, right? A lot of those people are doing labor. It's usually agricultural labor. There are also a lot of industrial landscapes in the show. I was really struck by how much ag and how much industry there is in these paintings. Was that something that surprised you as you spent a decade on on this project? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, and even something, even some of the landscapes, I mean, they're, they're about industry. I mean, you, you look at something like Lamar Dodd's Copper Hill, which is, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it as closely as I can. I don't know that there's any actual people in it, but certainly it's about the effect and the impact of human industry on the landscape. You know, even in paintings without people, I think it, it is about industry. The other thing is that, you know, there are people, you know, not just working or doing other things, but, you know, there's, there's entertainment, there's religious scenes, there's baptism, there's the painting like Carrie Freund's Crossroad Forum, people coming together to talk about issues of the day. You know, so that there are any number of images with people in them that, you know, touch on other aspects. I and mean, one of the smaller sections of the show that we did is called Religion and Ritual. So you've got any number of the kind of paintings that relate to spiritual songs and, and representations of them as well. There are a lot of baptisms in American painting going back to like Worthington Whitridge and in a way George Innes. So it's not a sub Southern subject, maybe only historic. It's not only a Southern subject historically, but, but it's interesting to see it as a subject that carries into the 20th century and and after the moment at which the Northeast was obsessed with, you know, burning over districts, shall we say. Um, <laughs> so there, there are, you know, big name artists here, you know, Hale Woodruff is well represented, Jacob Lawrence, Robert Guathme, I think I'm going to call a big name. Even though I, <laughs> maybe, deserves... maybe if you're in the field, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm always like, super delighted to see Guathme. Who were some of the artists that, as you worked on this project, you came to think deserve more possibly monographic attention? You know, someone like Ted Fares is a great example who worked in in Memphis. Um, I was he was someone whose whose work I was really fascinated by. You know, seeing what he was doing in the forties, fifties, sixties. You know, I thought his work was fascinating, and and a lot of these artists, you know, it's interesting. A lot of them have had monographic shows. But they've tended to be, you know, at these smaller southern institutions. And so because those shows might have only appeared at one venue or one or two venues in the region, you know, they haven't kind of escaped, <laughs> escaped into the, the broader orbit of American art history. I mean, certainly there are artists in the show like Lois Milo Jones and others who who have you know, achieved that level. You know, someone like Gregory Ivey, who is working in uh, Greensboro during the 40s, 50s and 60s as well. Yeah, so I think there are, there are a number. I mean, Will Henry Stevens, I mean, if you look at 
any museum in the Southeast has like <laughs> 10 or 12 World Heritage Stevens sitting in their storage room, but you don't see them that much outside of the region. The work is, is pretty is pretty great, I think. Yeah, so there's there's a number of artists like that who I think are known within the region, but it, it's how do you get the, how do you get them better known beyond? And I think it's the point of a show like this that hopefully begins to raise their visibility, and then they get integrated integrated into you know the bigger picture of American art history to some extent. I also noticed in the catalog that kind of within the show is a certain argument that the South was a particular center of modernist printmaking. Is that a fair comment? And if it is, why was there so much printmaking going on in the South? Yeah, I mean, that was in, in Martha Severn's essay. And Martha was great. Martha, from the beginning, has has really been, she's, you know, my co-curator, co-organizer, kept me on task. And I think, you know, she writes about that. I think when you look at the prints that are in included in the show and, and you think about the artists who are making prints at the time, I wonder if it's partly because, you know, if you think about printmaking as, as a particularly democratic easily, you know, it has a lower price point, you know, it's more saleable in, in, in some ways. Now, I wonder if that has something to do with it, that these artists were, were seeking to create works that, that were more saleable to less affluent audiences. You know, I think a, a number of the prints of artists in the show, like Blanche Lazelle or Grace Martin Taylor, I mean, these are artists who are also coming together places outside of the South and making prints, like Provincetown, and then bringing those skills back to the region. So, you know, so I wonder if, if kind of those factors have something to do with it as well. Also, a lot of the printmakers in the show are women. Yeah. And it's, it, so it's interesting. You look at something like Grace Martin Taylor or Lizelle, who are definitely moving towards that more kind of simplified forms, bold colors, the white line prints. Those are one style. But then you look at someone like Claire Layton, who I find particularly fascinating, partly because the Mint has a big collection of her work and I've gotten to know it well. But here's here's an artist who came to the South, already an accomplished wood engraver from England and then lived in North Carolina for a number of years before moving up to Connecticut. But so I think you have artists like her who are coming who can teach what they know as well. And that spurs in subsequent generations to to go on and, and utilize those skills. Her firewood in Georgia is maybe my favorite print in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Right before I started here, I guess, there was a local collector who had put together holdings of you know, somewhere around 150, 200 works by Leighton and donated them to the museum. So we did a, a show, uh, my first show I did here, in catalog and just digging into her work. It's pretty remarkable. And yeah, Firewood in Georgia, I mean, you can't escape the kind of Christ-like illusion of <laughs> bearing the cross in that in that print. And so we had to pick from all of these, you know, not all of her prints are Southern, a lot of them were done in England and depict other things. So yeah, so we, we, we picked that one and then the moonshine still because you got to have the moonshine in the show somewhere. That's fantastic. That one's pretty fantastic too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you look you look across her work and she's doing baptism. She's doing cockfights. I mean, she, you know, she's, she's, she did a whole a series on North Carolina folklore. So she's an artist who really, and she didn't just do them because she heard about these things. I mean, she would travel across the state and meet these people and, and really get to know what was going on in their communities, you know, earn their, their trust to be able to to see something like a moonshine still and then and then make a print of it. The final kind of area I wanted to raise is one you you touched on earlier, and that's abstraction. We do not think of of the South as the center of early modernist abstraction, but you have paintings, you have abstract paintings here from like 1915. Blanche Lazelle is making abstract works on paper in the early 1920s. Will Henry Stevens is abstracting from landscape kind of feels like Charles Crutch painting, almost feels like he's abstracting away from Charles Crutch in, in, in the late 30s and 40s. 
is that because artists from the South were engaging with artists in Europe or New York that were playing with abstraction or is it more home, home, homegrown than that? No, it's the former. I mean, <laughs> so like I said, I mean, the, the show is not making the case that, as I said before, there's some kind of un, unknown Stieglitz circle that was functioning here that he was doing it at the same time that, you know, Arthur Dove was in New York. <laughs> and I think if you look, I mean, obviously you'll, you'll, you'll see the majority of the works in the show that kind of engage with, with that avenue of aesthetic uh, exploration. You know, most of them tend to come from the beyond that 30s, 40s, 50s. So it, it's more, I think, showing that, you know, there is an awareness of this type of work from these artists because a lot of them had spent time in Europe, had spent time in New York. And, you know, later on in the timeline of the show, 40s and 50s, you know, there were were works or exhibitions that started to bring this work kind of work down to the region. And so I think what was more important was just to acknowledge that the artists working here from this region were aware of it and were processing it in their own ways. Not that they were kind of leading and innovating, but, but yeah, that there was an awareness and engagement with what was going on out there in the world and that it was happening you know, here as well. Finally, I wanted to raise Black Mountain College, which you note in the catalog didn't have, did not have that much influence on making in the South. Black Mountain comes along, you know, really kind of at the end of the show's chronological life anyway. Why didn't Black Mountain College have as much influence on art practice in the South as maybe, maybe one might expect? I mean, it must be said the, the Southern Appalachians are kind of their own other, own other world. <laughs> they are. And I, I mean, I think, you know, we, we felt that it was important to include Black Mountain and we did one Alberts and one Elaine de Kooning just to have kind of what, you know, one of the founding members and then one of the you know important students who came and spent time there and grew out of Black Mountain. You know, certainly we didn't feel like we needed to do a whole section just because nowhere else got that treatment and Black Mountain's been done <laughs> many times. And, you know, that show that the ICA in Boston did a few years ago was really terrific, I think, in terms of the ground that it covered in relation to Black Mountain and its importance. I think partly because, I mean, you look at other colonies, artist colonies in the South, and obviously Black Mountain wasn't a colony, but I'm going to use those as, as a, a parallel in a way. These are, are places in Mississippi and, and Louisiana that that are drawing in artists from the region and sustaining kind of creativity in the region, whereas Black Mountain very much brought in artists from all over the country, but you know, mostly New York, right? <laughs> well, Ruth saw was California. Well, sure, but uh, I said all over the country, yeah, but mostly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm always going to raise the flag. <laughs> but I think you know, partly it it was that. I mean, it, it was you know who came to it, fed, who got invited the next year, who knew of it, and I think it was in some ways a kind of an insular little place, and it certainly was an incubator for a lot of great ideas. And there were artists, I and mean, you know, someone like Kenneth Noland, who's from Asheville, who spent time there. But I think by and large, it didn't kind of radiate outward within the region as much as one might imagine. I presume geography has a lot to do with it. I mean, Black Mountain is just, you know, in, in, in terms of the chronology covered in the show is, you know, not connected to anywhere else in the South by by even good highways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like you said, I mean, it does fall. I mean, I, I think... It's lifespan. It falls kind of in the middle. I mean, it started in the 30s, but, you know, primarily 40s, 50s. It, it does fall kind of towards the end of, of the run of, of the show. And, and that was one of the kind of, you know, we had to kind of, what, what are our parameters for the exhibition? And so we kind of came up with, 
you know, towards the end of World War II, early early 50s was the stopping point. And I think you know, you'll see the effect of Black Mountain on modern art at large, kind of from the 50s onward, but maybe not so much just in terms of opening up so many different kinds of artistic practice into, into the field, into the canon, the integration of different ways of thinking about making art. I mean, I think it, its true impact comes on a, on a probably a more a broader national scale slightly after the the arc of our our project. Absolutely. Jonathan Stolman, thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.